listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science, and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today was once described on NPR as a one-man science-religion reconciliation committee. With a background in physics and a master of divinity, he comfortably navigates both worlds and makes it look easy. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew Groves. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure to, uh, to get to talk to you from your rented beach house on the coast of North Carolina. As I sit here in the mountains of Pennsylvania, covered in snow, <laughs> so I'll try not to be too uh, yeah, jealous. Great. I'm not not swimming this week, probably a little little chilly for that, but it's great. Mm. Uh, beach is a beach. So you have a a very very interesting and diverse uh, CV. Uh, I'm really thankful by the way, that you have a website that is so detailed with all of the things that you've ever done and all of the media appearances that you've had and just everything all in one place. It makes it so much easier for me. I don't have to go hunting for all of your various accomplishments, which like I said, are pretty very, um, it's it's all come together in this moment right here. Um, but in, in the bio that you wrote on your website, uh, you mentioned that after you finished your undergrad in physics, you decided not to pursue a PhD and instead spent several months discerning what to do next. Can you walk us through what was happening in your life and why you decided to deviate from that original path? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I guess um, it would be what you'd call a, a mid-youth crisis. And I was... I was I was young. I was good at physics, and I really liked science. And that had kind of been my whole plan. I went to college and enrolled in all the physics classes you have to take to go and get a physics PhD. And I was good at school, and I liked learning. And I just kind of I woke up one day in the middle of quantum physics two and realized that I, I liked this stuff, but I wasn't sure if I loved it enough to do five more years on it. And everybody around me gave me some great advice, which is you shouldn't go to grad school if you're not sure if you want to go to grad school. And so then I, I, I had a little, not a, not a full-blown planet, but I was like, I don't know what to do with myself now. This has been my plan for years and years. And so I sat down and kind of took stock about what I was good at and what the world seemed to need. And I realized that there weren't too many Baptist minister sons from rural Appalachia who had new science degrees um, and were like really, really interested in science and faith. So I, I realized that maybe I could help, um, help some people put the pieces together of science and religion in their lives because of my kind of varied background. So Baptist minister's son in rural Appalachia. That's true. Yep. I was I was born in Louisville, where my dad was a seminary and then PhD student at the Southern Baptist Seminary, and then when I was three or four, we moved to this Christian boarding school outside of Bristol on the Virginia side, and I, I grew up there ever since. Um, and it was a it was, it was a great childhood. I um, I was surrounded by nature all the time. I did Boy Scouts. Our our pastor did a really good job of encouraging questions, and he taught religion at the high school there. And my my parents were in admin at the school. 
Uh, and so I was able to spend a lot of time outside and fall in love with God's green earth and um, grow up in a really supportive and um, inquisitive church home. And uh, I, I loved I loved everything about it. Yeah. Has has this path that you've chosen, this uh, merging, helping so find reconciliation between science and religion, has, the, has this path been met with acceptance or rejection or some combination of the two by that um, church and uh, religious foundation of your origin? Yeah, I think my, my home church has been very supportive in general. Um, and I think, yeah, you'll, you'll find, you'll find a mix. I, I'm coming up on about a hundred science and faith Sunday school classes. If, if not for COVID, I would have crossed a hundred this summer, which was a bummer for me, but you get a, you get a whole spectrum. I mean, most of them are on climate change. Climate change is a big interest of mine. I work for a group called young evangelicals for climate action. Um, but you also talk about evolution. You talk about space, you talk about biblical interpretation. Um, and I think some some audiences are more receptive than others, and um, all you can do is move people one little one little move their needle just a little bit. Um, so even if people do have in their mind kind of a a vision for the world in which science and faith are conflicting views, you can, if nothing else, leave them with the impression that, huh, well, this nice young man doesn't seem to think that. Um, and if that's if that if that's if that's all I can I can leave someone with, well, that's better than better than nothing. Um, hmm. I like to think that for lots of other people, especially younger younger audiences, I, I try to do a lot with youth groups and college groups, and I'm, I'm a high school teacher as well. So especially in like the 15 to 25 year old range, I really like to think that I'm able to show people um, that you don't have to choose between science and your faith, um, which you can get that impression from the science side if all you listen to is Dawkins, and you can get that impression from the religion side if all you listen to is Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham. Um, so I, I like to think <laughs> that I can I can demonstrate there's another way to people who, who might be curious about that. Yeah. Mm. Once again, it, Ken Ham, if you're listening, you are welcome on this show at any time. We name drop you a lot. <laughs> and if you'd like to come and defend yourself yeah. at any point. Yeah, We're I had, I had a friend who, who met him at his museum, and he said he was relatively nice to him and found out they disagreed and asked him to leave, and it was fine. But it was – I mean, he's a, he's, a very, he's a very bright guy, right, which I think is, is crucial for people who don't – who maybe aren't familiar with that strand of the church. Um, it's easy to think that, oh, well, people who, people who are science skeptical, well, they're just stupid, and there you go, and we can move on with that. Um, and I think – I think that also helps me is coming from evangelical rural Appalachia. I, I know a lot of people who disagree with everybody I went to, to seminary with at Vanderbilt. Right. Um, and so I think uh, I would, I would, I would be, I would, I would be glad to talk to Ken Ham about the ways in which we disagree and the ways in which I think he's not helping the future of the church or America. Um, but anyway, so you you say you're um you you're almost up to a hundred Sunday school lessons. That's true. Taught. Yeah. Um, Is that in like a couple of different churches or? Uh, yeah. Where are you teaching yeah. these things? The, the Sunday school classes they're a blast. They're my kind of my my bread and butter at least before COVID. Um, and I think that's a 
I, I grew up in a school, right? So in more of a classroom style setting, I'm very comfortable. Um, it, I'm up to, I think, nine or 10 different denominations in like 15 or 20 different churches by this point to like a lot of different age ranges. So I've taught at UCC churches and Presbyterian USA churches, and I've also taught in Southern Baptist churches and Church of Christ churches um, and Catholic churches and what have you. And I really enjoy the variety of engaging with different people because talking to a retiree Sunday school class at a Disciples of Christ Church in Nashville, it's a very different vibe than talking to um, a Southern Baptist youth group or talking to the young professionals class at uh, Church of Christ um, outside of Nashville. And you've got to be be aware of your audience. Um, and I do... I do approach things a little differently if I if I know the audience is going to be either very supportive or very hesitant. And so I don't, it's not like I don my Kinham hat, but when I'm talking to people who like really don't understand why anyone would ever have any kind of problem with science and their faith, I'm like, well, let's talk about why people would have these hesitations. Um, and then the classes where I really, I really enjoy, um, where it's not that I don't enjoy talking to people who are already very science friendly, but it's a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir. So I really enjoy talking to classes that are a little more science skeptical and I'm able to really help move some hearts and minds for people who maybe haven't thought that they can um, accept the science on, on certain issues. And it's a blast. I've only had, I think one walkout. Um, it was, it was early on. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm really proud of that. I think my my kind of my MO is to avoid picking a fight with someone without lying. So I'm never going to lie about what I think, but I try really hard to avoid getting into a fight with people. And I think if you if you're able to avoid making things be contentious, like you can you can really have conversations with people who super disagree with you on things. Um without it getting out of hand. And like, I, I've grown in that for sure. Um, but I think it's a little bit of a lost art in today's world is being able to have prolonged, respectful conversations with people you disagree with. And that's how I changed my mind about things. Um, that's how anybody changes their mind about things. So the hope is that when I talk to more science skeptical audiences, I can have productive chats and show them, show them a different way. Even if I'm not going to really change their hearts and minds, they can at least kind of change their perception a little bit of the issue. Mm. I hope. How do you do that? I think yeah, it's it's tricky. You're you're making sacrifices for sure. You're you're trying. You you, you can't push too many buttons at once. Um, which you've got to be a little a little. Um, you've got to be careful not to sell out other views you have. Um, but you do have to pick your fights. Mm. And if you, if you're, if I'm in a class talking about climate change and I get talking about several other issues at the same class, you're not going to change every someone's worldview in on five different things in an hour. That's not going to happen. Um, so I try to stay really on task and be empathetic um, and see where they're, see where they're coming from. So like on, on, on climate in particular, the reason people don't believe in climate change is not because they got a PhD in atmospheric chemistry and decided it was, it was, it was unsound, right? 
the reason people don't believe in climate change is because of usually their political views and like their their views on liberty and market econ- economics and their views on what I should be allowed to do and their views on um, sometimes biblical interpretation, not not quite as often as it is with evolution. Um, but you try to know your audience and listen to your audience and then talk to them in language they can understand about why this should be a priority for them. There's a, a climate professor at Texas Tech, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who is a senior advisor for my Christian climate organization, who I really like. And she always says, you're not going to change people's minds. Uh, you're not going to change people's values. So you need to be able to speak to them in ways that their values can understand. Um, and so I try to think a lot about how I present things to people with different values, um, different audiences. Mm. It's extremely important. Yeah. Jury, jury's out. I, we'll, we'll see how I've been doing. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, that's the other thing that you, most people, I, all people, um, hold views and beliefs that they didn't reason their way into. And so they're not going to be able to reason their way out of it, us included. Even, even those of us who imagine that everything that we believe is based on facts and logic and reason, we didn't get there that way. And so it takes a long time. And so I, as I'll tell you, as a pastor, you don't always see the results for right away, or maybe even ever. Maybe it'll be years down the line that the person starts to soften and, and starts to understand what you were saying all those years ago. I, yeah. So in those conversations that you're having in these uh, in these church settings, uh, you've mentioned climate change a bit. I know that's something that's near and dear to your heart. Um, What have you found to be the most common sorts of questions or topics that are resonating with people right now? Hmm. Yeah, I think for for climate, um, I, I really enjoy talking to like the youth group crowd about stuff like that. It's I, I think there's a, a little bit of an age gap there where older people um, are more more skeptical, more hesitant. How do we really know? What's the science really say? Don't scientists get paid to come up with good data and whatever? And so, like a lot of that is like very basic science education. That I'm I'm happy to talk about how peer review works, right? Um, so there's a there's always a decent piece of that. Um, for younger people, it's how do I get involved? Um, how can I? What can what can I do? And I think like a lot of people who do climate work will tell you um, your hope comes from, from young people in a lot of ways to see like the, the enthusiasm, the excitement from younger generation to like see something and want to do something about it. And the, the passion there is really uplifting. Um, a lot of the times climate work can feel a little defeatist and that's a, a great, great uplift. Mm. People want to talk about why, why should I care about that? What can I do about that? Um, and I'm, I'm glad to have science education conversations, but I almost more enjoy when people ask, well, why should we as Christians care about that? So that's a little more my specific mm. background is why should the church care about scientific things? And so I'm very glad to, glad to have those conversations. Why should the church care? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the... The, the pitch for me 
is when when Jesus is asked the greatest commandments, he you know, he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, "You shall love the Lord your God with everything you have, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself." And I think for us as Christians, there you have it. We should care about climate change and like eco theology more broadly speaking, for love of God and for love of neighbor. And I think we have a duty to God to care for the earth. And if you read Genesis, um, especially Genesis one, but also Genesis two and three, people have responsibilities and um, we haven't been doing a very good job at upkeeping our responsibilities for the earth. Um, A metaphor I really like is that uh, species in particular are, um, a different voice in God's chorus. And when species die, that voice is never going to be heard again in the same way. And the, the chorus of God's creation, all these beautiful things the Lord has made that we are free to enjoy and learn about and study and appreciate and care for, and we kind of haven't um, as a human species. Um, so I think out of duty to God, for sure, we ought to be very intentional about how we interact with nature. Like in the first chapter of Romans, Paul is like, look at how beautiful everything is. You should be able to look at the world and reason that there's some kind of a God. And I think we as Christians should take it very seriously that the natural world isn't trivial in in how we should interact with God. So that's for, for love of God. And then I think second, for, for love of neighbor, um, it's climate change it's it's a scientific issue yes it's a policy issue yes and all these other things but i think for the church it should primarily be a humanitarian issue um is that there's immense suffering in the world already from climate change and it's only going to increase and the people who are suffering from climate change are not the people who are most responsible for climate change Um, and you don't have to look very far in the New Testament to find examples of how Jesus thinks we should handle situations like that. Um, like Matthew, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats is kind of the go-to example um, about how Jesus thinks we should treat people who are in need. Um, but I think in, in the, the, the scope of how we interact with each other and with the natural world, I think it's a very Christian response to take climate change seriously. And, I'm very happy to have a conversation with that from a biblical perspective with people, which which surprises people sometimes because you don't you don't often think Christians' climate change must be a biblical perspective on that. Um, but that's one of the things I really like doing is I feel really confident that a biblical perspective on this issue will lead you to think, huh, we should care for the earth and for our neighbor. And getting people to that point is something I really I really appreciate. Is that like this is an outpouring of a Christian perspective? It's not that you just have to paint Christianity on top of climate activism. It's that that's a natural outpouring of a Christian view of this issue. Yeah, I found the my response when I've taught on this subject to, to church folks is um, it either acceptance and yeah, you're preaching to the choir, or one of two objections either. Um, this isn't actually real. This isn't good science. Um, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're getting sucked in by the liberals or um, a fiercely eschatological worldview that says that we're living in the end and the world is going to burn anyway. So what does it matter if we save the penguins? The uh, how, how do you respond to those? Um 
Hey, this I'm not being interviewed here. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, I'm see, I'm always it's it's such a it's such a pleasure to talk to people who do similar things. I I absolutely take notes when I get the opportunity. So like on the science mm-hmm. level, that's people who are either like uninformed or more nefariously misinformed about how science works, and that's 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 one conversation. Um, what do you, what do you say to the eschatological perspective in particular? Well, I will say that if somebody holds either of those positions really strongly, I will typically not get them to come out to my lesson, to my teaching. I will only ever get them if they're a captive audience in my church on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Like when I hold events and trainings and whatnot, the people who come are the people who already agree. But if it's a Sunday morning sermon and they're there for church anyway, and you know, Wow! I hit them with a climate change sermon they didn't see coming. Then I'll hear about yeah. it afterwards. And yep. you know, in the fifteen to eighteen minute sermon, I don't have a time to really go into the carbon cycle. I try to do a little bit with um, some of the rocks that you discover here in Pennsylvania. I think you can tell a pretty neat story in terms of um, uh, the pyroclastic flow that you find here in this there's like a valley here between newark and redding that exploded uh like the what would that have been the early triassic or late triassic early triassic you can tell a story out here about how there's a lot of coal (laughs) north of redding and south of redding but there's no coal in redding because and you can look geologically at how all of that coal burned up when the the continents mm-hmm. were shifting and released a mm-hmm. ton of carbon dioxide and warmed the atmosphere and uh, killed off a lot of the animals and led to the rise of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And you can yeah. tell that story with the rocks. And I've found people out here being like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I can see it in your hands yeah. and all of that. And that That's a fun way to teach it. But <laughs> if it's a biblical-based um it's a lot harder to change people's biblical interpretation. If they believe that we're living in the end times, then no amount of me talking about how many times people have thought they're living in the end times seems to change that mm-hmm. or teaching what John was doing in Revelation or mm-hmm. any of those. People people seem to be like in it to win it when it comes to fierce eschatological doomsday thinking. <laughs> Yeah. And like, it's like the rocks is great, right? Like people can see the rocks in front of them and you can hold them and like give a tour. I think I, I love that. Uh, if you can make it real and tangible. Um, I think on, on biblical stuff, I really enjoy, I think it's in second Thessalonians. It's one of the, like the shorter Pauline epistles where he's heard that the people um, have heard that the, the end is nigh. And they're like, well, the apocalypse is coming in any day now. Let me just kick my feet up. And and that's where the verse, if you don't work, you don't eat, comes from. And so I I really like that verse, which of course has its own like history of misinterpretation. But I really like that verse mm-hmm. as saying, you don't know when the end is coming. And so don't just kick up your feet and pretend that you're, you've got your ticket stamped and you're set. Um, yeah, anyway. Rachel told me in a previous episode that there's this old rabbinical saying that if you are in the process of planting a tree when the Messiah comes, you finish planting the tree before greeting him. Hmm. Because 
the good that you're doing in the moment is its own reward, regardless of if it's going to be enjoyed by anyone else. And that way of thinking makes a lot of sense to a religious group that doesn't really have a very uh, complicated um, eschatology Mm -hmm. or uh, as much of a focus on the afterlife as Christians seem to. It, um, I think our focus on the afterlife makes it harder for us to focus on the life. Yeah. Um, at least in evangelical circles that in which we both were raised. Yeah. I I feel like there's, there's, there's a good rabbinical saying for, for any life scenario. Uh, (laughs) I know I love them. (laughs) Yeah. They're great. I, um, yeah, I, I think there's the, the fear. Uh, for sure. There's the old joke of don't be so heavenly focused, you're no earthly good. And I think we definitely, we fall into that. And also like, what does that, what does that say about your relationship with the here and now? It says that you're not overly concerned with your current circumstances. Uh, It's a very, very, I don't want to say a privileged position, but it's like, if you're able to say, eh, the the current world order, eh, it seems fine. It's all going to burn up anyway. It doesn't really matter. Whereas if you're like really concerned with how the world is treating you and your rights are truly being stripped and you're not able to flourish in your current environment, then you might not be so inclined to be like, well, I'm sure God will sweep this up anytime now and let me just uh, not worry about what happens. So I think Hmm. from the, that's not a very, that's not a very humanitarian perspective um, for uh, I, I can't imagine Jesus saying, well, you know, all this suffering, eh, just kind of brush it off and don't really worry about it because the end is nigh. That doesn't seem like a very Christ-like response mm. to me. No, other than in the misinterpretation of Jesus's, uh, eh, the poor will always be with you. I'm with you now. The poor, I think that's more of a condemnation of us than an endorsement of poverty. But yeah. <laughs> an endorsement of poverty. Can you yeah. imagine such a thing? <laughs> yeah. So speaking of, um, you are on the steering committee for the Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. You mentioned it earlier with uh, Catherine Hayo. Um, can you tell us a bit about that group? What sorts of things that you're doing there and what that the group is doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, YCA, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of YCA. We, um, we, we do a lot of things. Our flagship program is something that I'm pretty involved in, which is an undergraduate fellows program where we recruit fellows from across the country. And, uh, well, not this year with COVID, but in other years, we have a week-long training program with them to help ground them in the, the science, theology, and policy of climate change from a Christian perspective. And then we send them off to their campus and they try to tackle some sort of project. And we have bi-weekly check-ins with small group leaders and we've had kids do a lot of different things. We've had kids do film screenings. We've had kids do rain gardens. Kids do composting. Kids do recycling. Um, kids do thrift store, like secondhand um, giveaways. We've had kids do chapel series if it's at a Christian school. Um, just ways to try to help them get plugged into their community and make a difference in their community, but also for them to feel less lonely because a lot of the times it feels so lonely when you're a young Christian who cares about um, climate justice as a part of your faith and nobody around you does. Um, so it's a little, hmm. little little, bit of both there, both trying to make a big influence on their campus, but also kind of in the spiritual formation sense, helping them 
get their get their feet under them and be connected to resources they might not otherwise come across. So that's a big thing we do. Yeah. Yeah. Enabling and training people to then go back to their places of influence to then do something on their own, which you support, is so very pastoral. That's you're ba- basically being climate pastors for for young people. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think it's um. There's also a, a lot of sociology research about people who are going to change people who who people the kind of people who do change their minds about something especially climate, um, are often, they have their mind changed by a younger relative. So like nieces and nephews is like the, one of the go-tos. So there's a real sociology argument you can make that equipping college kids to talk to their churches and talk to their aunts and uncles and what have you about this and deacons, this is one of the ways you can shift the church's view on this is by supporting young people's efforts to engage their, their houses of worship and their campuses and their communities and people in their circles. Um, so we think that's a really fertile area um, to, to promote. Um, we, do, we do other things. We did a, uh, I helped lead, we did a climate liturgy in front of the White House last year, um, which, was, which was pretty great. It was in this liturgical sense, forgive us our sins and naming our ecological sins. Um, we, we write a fair amount. We, we do a little bit of, um, of lobbying state houses in Congress. Um, and uh, that's why I see it. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, a good group of people. And we are, we are branching out. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, this was you know, three college kids in a dorm room. And this year we had 30 fellows who are paid fellowships. Wow. And so the growth has been incredible. Um, and if you know any any young people in your lives, any college kids, um, look up Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. And we're we're about to start recruiting actually for the twenty twenty one fall cohort coming in. And I'm I'm the person who reviews applications actually. So um, oh. if you put in your application, you heard about it from the Down the Wormhole podcast. I'll uh, I'll be sure to give you a close look. And when does that start? This spring, we'll do interviews in like February. It's a little up in the okay. air with COVID. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to have an in-person training retreat in August. Because um, right now, it is the end of December, but I don't think this episode will air until late January or early February. So perfect. that's just on time. Perfect. Yeah. Well, great. That, that's right in the wheelhouse of our, of our listener base. So I hope that you get some applications. Yeah. And we're, we're very ecumenical as well. So no worries. So to this point, you've told me mostly about your work communicating science to religious people, but it also goes the other way too. And I know you've spoken with uh, like at the the March for Science and whatnot, um, though it was virtual this year. So it wasn't much of a march. Yeah. Uh, the, the sit for science. <laughs> what, what is that conversation like? Yeah. Going the other way. I around. do think it goes both ways. I think um, I, th- I think it goes both ways, but I think it's also fair to say the church is at fault in this. I think it's 100% fair to say that we as the church um, have not been as um, robust in our thinking on this as we should be. We fall prey to conspiracy theories and, and political leanings and what, what have you. So I think, I think it is fair to say the church is at fault and we should lead with that. But I also think the church has a lot to offer the modern world as far as 
how we should interact with each other and with nature. I mean, anyone who hasn't read Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si should read it regardless of their religious perspectives. It's like a masterpiece on how the whole world is intertwined in a way it hasn't been before um, and how our, our, our actions have consequences. Um, I think the church has a lot to offer climate activism and science activism in general uh, with uh, our tone of hopefulness. I think it's really easy for climate activism in particular to kind of lapse into despair um, there's this great Wendell Berry poem called The Mad Farmer Manifesto, and he says, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. And that's like, that's printed out on my on my wall in my home office, because we, we can't ignore the facts, right? We, we should be abundantly concerned with what the facts tell us about science in general and climate in particular, but that doesn't obligate you to despair. And there's a, there's a difference there, I think, um, in, in tone uh, for how you interact with the world. And for, for no other reason, if, if you need one, then that doom and gloom messaging doesn't work. Like the sociology is pretty clear that that hasn't worked for us. For as long as I've been alive, the science has been settled. And we have not been able to achieve a mass um, perspective on climate action. So... That's that's one thing. I think the church has a lot of resources in our toolkit from people who've been thinking about this for a long time in church history, and we can pull from that that wisdom. And if you need a really practical reason, if you're like a, a cynical atheist about why we should talk to churches about science, it's because I think last I checked, the Pew stats were 60-70% of Americans identify as Christians one way or another, and we're not going to get significant climate action if 60 or 70% of your population has a big chunk of it that's science skeptical. Um, and I think yeah. if you were to pick one demographic that was the most important in having climate action happen, who are currently resistant, like if you can get a large chunk of the religious right on board with climate action, that'll be huge for our like political possibilities. Um, and that, those aren't the only people whose perspectives matter that they are people who I'm equipped to help come to this perspective. Um, so I think that's kind of my rationale for, for why I do this. Mm. Tell you, I had so much fun at the first um, March for Science. Was that back in 2017? Yeah. Um, I, I was one of the speakers at our local one in Lancaster, mm -hmm. PA. And... Um, it was a bunch of scientists, and none of them, I think, had ever protested before and didn't really understand how the whole thing worked. They were all so respectful. I mean, they had clever signs, yeah. but they were all just really nice and just milling around. And me, having grown up evangelical, man, I protested all kinds of things. I protested a Harry Potter uh, oh, man. <laughs> um, uh, book. Uh, You're a veteran. Like. Oh man, I am in it to win it when it comes to this. And so I'm there with my collar and like so clergied up and I started leading people in chants because nobody knew how to protest yeah. and they didn't get their permits right. And so they didn't get the, the electricity turned on for the speakers. And so nobody knew how to yell. And so I was up there on a planter, like shouting these things and leading in protests and 
the uh, organizers came up to me and they were like, uh, it's going to be at least another hour until we can get the speakers working. And none of our speakers want to want to go without a microphone. Um, but we need to do something. Would you be able to give your speech without a microphone? And I was like, sure, I'm a preacher. I'm a Baptist preacher's kid, a grandkid. Like, I'm in this. Let's do it. And so I'm, I'm like shouting to people to gather up, gather up. The rains come in and I'm I'm up there like shouting about this message about reconciling science and religion and bringing us all together in, in this pursuit of science. And somebody hands me a megaphone. Nice. And the irony of... <laughs> A preacher on a street corner screaming to a group of non-religious people, and they give me a micro a megaphone mm-hmm. was just it was incredible. I loved it so much. And then they fixed it and the other speakers went. But I had so many people afterwards tell me, um, like religious people be like, I thought I was the only one in the world who felt this way. And then non-religious people who were like, I thought every religious person thought the other way. Yeah. I'm it's it's so refreshing to hear this. And I thought to myself after that, like, man, if I could just do this all the time, yep. just be the voice out there that makes people say, I didn't realize that people were talking like this. Because everyone is. The, the, the amount of people who are talking this way and believing this way is yeah. huge. It's just that we don't have a huge platform and we're not vocal about it. One of the reasons we started this podcast. And so then you you got vocal about it. And you made a platform. There you go. Exactly. And so we yeah. like if I could devote myself, like if someone were paying my bills, and and I was just free to do whatever my heart so desired, I think I would spend a lot of time, um, maybe not necessarily literally shouting on street corners, but the the equivalent of that. Though my my great grandfather was a street corner preacher, and I do have his preaching Bible, but I there wouldn't. You go. I wouldn't go that route. Um, so if someone paid all your bills, yeah. all right, so if you got a ben, uh, a benevolent benefactor, yeah. like great expectation mm-hmm. style, somebody paid for all of your everything and you were free to do whatever you felt was most important for your soul and for the soul of the world, what would you be doing right now? Uh, yeah. First off, that story is awesome. That's a, that's a biblical story right there. <laughs> Like street corner, rain's coming so much in. Fun. I can just see it. That needs to be like a mural somewhere. Um, <laughs> what would I do if I had anybody do anything? Um, I guess it's a good sign that uh, it wouldn't be like drastically different from what I'm doing right now. Um, I think for me, there's something really special about the 15 to 25 year old demographic. And that's the age when you're sorting out all your perspectives and you're deciding, well, what did my parents teach me? What have I, what did I decide I want to keep? What do I want to toss from that? And I think the way that large portions of Christianity have set up the dialogue on science and religion, it leads young people to think, well, here's the science block and here's the Christian block and I've got to choose one or the other. And they're going to get to college and realize, oh, science is incredibly robust and we have great reasons for believing its trustworthiness. So then they toss the church side of things, right? And I feel like that is, it's one, it's bad for the church because I care about the future of the church. But I also think it's not helpful for the future of building things like a broad base of support for climate action and, and what have you. Um, so working with that demographic on science and faith formation, particularly as it relates to more tangible topics like climate, um, 
is a real a real interest for me. And there's a couple ways you can go about that. Like I spent three years as an assistant youth minister in Southern Baptist Church in Nashville, and I, I enjoyed a lot of that. Um, I've I've worked for the Christian Climate Group YCA, and um, doing our undergrad fellowships is something I, I love. Everyone at YCA will tell you that's something that that's just it's one of the best things we do. Um, and then there's another another option as well, which I'm currently pursuing and really enjoying is teaching at a Christian high school. So I'm teaching science mm. at a Christian high school, physics in particular, because that's my degree background, and teaching a religion elective on the side for them. Um, so I think some – when COVID is over, I'll still be teaching Sunday school classes. So I, I'd like to think it's, it's some version of what I'm doing right now, um, which, which is a good sign for me um, mm. that I've, I've been able to find a way to make it work. But – it's uh, it's a little tricky. Like there's there aren't that many Christian climate organizations who are hiring in in the world right now. <laughs> um, so I think my parents are teachers, and it was a natural fit for me, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, but in in the future, I would be open to doing something that's a little more overtly on the activist side of things. Um, but I I also think reaching kids uh, upstream so to speak is is one way to keep them interested and to let them get plugged into activism in church world down the line because teenagers Mm -hmm. they want to be involved and that's one way you lose that's one way the church has lost so many young people is they don't see connections between their faith and like substantive issues of the day and climate change is one of the major substantive issues of the day and you look at people, look, look at Greta, right, and her like army of young people. Look at Sunrise Movement, right, who have really tapped into something. And I think we need to show young people that the church can and is a part of those conversations, and they don't have to leave that at the door when they go to youth group. So I think pursuing pursuing that kind of conversation with with the youth, and like you said earlier, right, you you, you never know what kind of background kids are coming from and how receptive or hesitant they're going to be or what their parents or pastors think, but you can plant seeds um, to use your expression from earlier. And you never know down the line. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's kind of my, one of my hopes is that, you know, three years from now I'll get an email from a kid uh, who's like, you know, I went to college and all of my professors told me that science really was true. And I was, I thought about leaving my faith behind, but then I remember there, there are some people out there who, who really think you can, believe in science and still be a Christian. Um, that's the, the hope yeah. for me is that I'll create more of those moments for young people. Um, it's a really good idea too, for all of our listeners right now, this has been an awful year across the board. We have all shared in our common trauma. And so if you can think of somebody in your life that years ago mm. said or did something to you that only later meant something to you, this would probably be a really good time to send them a letter or an email or reach out in some way to let them know because, good Lord, we could all use some encouragement right now. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes it feels like you're, what's the the, the phrase from Ecclesiastes? You're, you're throwing your bread on the waters and then it just gets flushed away. Um, but... But God sees that, and hopefully other people see that too sometimes, and you just don't always know what impact you're making. 
to Strange Passage. I like to imagine that it's about feeding ducks. That's, yeah, me too. It's a feeding fish. <laughs> it's what I always think of it as, feeding fish. But yeah. So here, uh, here at the end of our conversation, I want to ask you a question that's somewhat related to the last one, but different. This is a question that I've asked all of our fellows so far. And that is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? Hmm. There's so many things. That's the whole point of science is you learn all these cool things about the world and which in turn tell you more about the God who made the world, which is why we should care about science. Um, I think I'm going to give a version of something I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say once in high school that kind of hooked me on physics, which is that people look up at the stars and feel so small and we should feel small because we're small and the universe is big, but also we should feel big because even though we're a small piece of the stars, the stars are a small piece of us and all of our atoms literally are stardust um, from, from way, 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 way back. And I think it's, it's a profound message about how interconnected we all really are, that all of our bodies and all the atoms in, in planet Earth are literally stardust that came from similar stars back once upon a time. Um, and how the, the differences in people and places are on some level trivial because we're all, we're all from one place and we'll all go back to one place, dust to dust. Neil deGrasse Tyson, there you have it. Stardust to stardust. Stardust to stardust. Yeah. Oh, that would be a oh, great. I'll, um, that's, I'm going to hang on to that one. Stardust to stardust. Um, that's a good, that's a good liturgy to surprise people with. Yeah. I'll, um, yeah. I'll put that up in my classroom. Stardust to stardust. On, uh, yeah. That's beautiful. Until you start thinking about the eventual heat death of the universe. And then. Huh. <laughs> yeah, details, that's fine. Details. We won't be here for that. We details. won't be here for that part. Yeah, that's my that's my favorite answer to why climate change doesn't matter is because the eventual heat death of the universe. I'm like, really? That's your you believe enough in the science to accept that in millions and billions of years this issue won't matter, but not enough to listen to how it's affecting people here and now. Like, okay, I'm glad we clarified that. Yeah. What um I have I haven't run into that one yet, but that's that's pretty absurd. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about the universe? Oh man, you love to turn it back on me, don't I you? I do. I'm loving it. <laughs> um, I love that at the very heart of everything, everything that we understand is an interaction. The heart of physics is an interaction. It's it's the way that particles move within each other. It's about things colliding and forces that work off of each other. And there is nothing that stands on its own. Even, you know, the smallest quantum particle only exists in relationship to each mm -hmm. other. And even in the big yep. scale, right? That, that the planets go around the sun, the sun uh, is going around it's uh, it's little gravitational center, which is all going around the, the galaxy, which has its own cluster of galaxies, which in and of itself is then connected to something bigger. And then it just, you know, it's it's turtles all the way up as well as all the way down. And it's just amazing to think about that and how we as humans are so built for relationship. Mm -hmm. We're like the most social of social creatures. And 
the universe itself likewise seems to be built for relationship. Oh, I love that. I'm going to take that and use it for a devotional in January. That's uh, absolutely that's go for it. Like the 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 <laughs> illusion of individuality on like a deep level. Um, and we believe in a trinitarian God. So there you go. God also um, lives in community. And anyway, I love that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure getting to talk to you and hear a little bit about your work. It's definitely energizing for me, and I'm sure it'll be energizing for our listeners. Again, um, for all any of our listeners out there that are interested in applying for this fellowship for the Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, um, look that up online. Do you know the website off the top of your head? It's yecaction.org. Yecaction.org. Mm-hmm. Um, sign up should be, uh, application should be happening by the time that this is launched. And if not, they will be soon. Yeah. So make sure that you or someone that you love is in this because it seems really neat. So once again, Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Thank you very much, Zach. I had a blast. I'll uh, look you up next time I'm in uh, central Pennsylvania. Hey, likewise, enjoy the beach. 